Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Cities are either the place where we're going to conquer the greatest challenges facing humanity, or we're going to be overwhelmed by them. So they will shape the future of humanity. It's part two of our summer book club here on The Urbanist when we flick through the pages of some recent city-themed publications that have passed by our desk recently. This week, the very future of our urban environment is at stake as we find out how many of our societal battles could be won or lost in the city. Plus, we delve into the extraordinary story behind HMV, one of the world's most popular record shops ever, and how its rise is intertwined with London's urban transformation too. That's coming up over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. Our cities have for centuries been centres for human progress. As more and more of our global population moves to urban areas, we must ensure that our cities continue to provide solutions to society's issues, lest they become part of the problem. Ian Golden is a Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford. And he's also the co-author of a new book, Age of the City, Why Our Future Will Be Won or Lost Together. And I'm happy to say that Ian joins me in the studio now. Ian, thank you so much for being here. Now, what were the elements of cities and their development you felt needed to be unpacked at this point in their history? There certainly are many books on cities. I think this one is different in that it responds to a lot of new developments. I'm an economist who is concerned about the impact of the development of cities on the ability of societies to grow, so the creativity of cities. I'm very concerned about climate change and how we get to net zero and the role of cities in that. I've written a book on the pandemic and causes of that and implications. And so cities as circuit breakers for pandemics is very important. And I'm intrigued by this question as to why the world is not flat. You know, there was a whole bunch of books in the 90s and early 2000s suggesting that globalization and technological change would make place less important. The death of distance, the world is flat, two of the books. But actually what we're seeing is increasing concentration. And as we move into a world of generative AI and an increasing, I think, importance of people coming together physically, cities will be more important. And then I was very disturbed by what remote work was doing to cities. I believe that it's a potential existential threat to some cities, and we're seeing that in San Francisco today. And finally, I'm concerned about the rise of populism and the anti-cities sentiment that we see developing. A lot of what we see in the populist right and populist left is an anti-city agenda, certainly anti-metropolitan city agenda. And I think that's very dangerous and that we're at risk of leveling down, not leveling up. Can I just ask you, first of all, when you, you think about cities, it sounds though you see within them the potential to do all sorts of miraculous things or, or do bad things. So, first of all, the city itself, do you see it as a kind of fulcrum where all of these attributes that you're talking about, whether we want to solve the climate crisis, whether we want to tackle poverty and inequality, the city is a neutral thing, but if you have the right players and the right attitude, it can be a positive force for change. Absolutely. I think cities are either the place where we're going to conquer the greatest challenges facing humanity, or we're going to be overwhelmed by them. So they will shape the future of humanity. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is 
the obvious numerical thing that most people in the world live in cities, so their future will be determined in cities, and increasingly so, we're moving to two-thirds of the world's population. Most of the growth, of economic growth in the world, about 90% of it is in cities, so they're incredibly important for that reason. But what we also know from history is that cities are where we have breakthrough ideas, breakthrough ideas that create new civilizations, civilizational changes, but they're also the source of revolutions and massive pushback. And I've been intrigued by that. I did a book comparing our time to the Renaissance, and I was intrigued by how with the development of the printing press and the mass circulation of ideas, Florence became more important. Why did Florence have such a central role in the Renaissance? But not only in the Renaissance, of course, in the end of the Renaissance. Savonarola lit the bonfire of vanities in Florence. And so I see cities as the pivotal places for the future of humanity. And I believe they always have been historically. Now, whether it's an engine or as a metaphor, it's an organism. The other thing that struck me about the city when I was reading your book is that in a way, yes, we can control a little bit what they do and how they function. But it was interesting understanding that in a way, cities reflect also the technology and the the mobility available at the time. So you talked about how the suburbs only really took off once we began to get you know, commuter trains and subways and you could connect places. And it struck me again that when you talked about you know, the age of the internet, again, how that shaped the city. Do you think we have much control over the city or, or do you think that in the end, you know, the technology of the day, do you think in a way we're always racing to catch up a bit with the impact of these things? Technologies clearly shape cities and they have always. It was really only when we developed the capacity for cold storage, refrigeration, and the ability to hold food and not be totally dependent on the countryside. And agriculture developed the potential to create a surplus food that went beyond the needs of the farmer, that we could begin to think about urbanism and the creation of bigger and bigger cities. And it's quite a recent phenomenon, even at the height of the Roman Empire, when Rome was at its strongest, only about 15% of Italy was urbanized. So it's a relatively recent, really post-industrial revolution phenomenon that we see this massive growth in cities, refrigeration, later cars, of course, the elevator, the ability to go high up changed things dramatically as well. Railroads, including urban railroad systems, metro systems, and now air conditioning, of course, has been revolutionary in allowing people to live in very hot places. We would not have Phoenix, Arizona or Los Angeles, for example, as dynamic cities without air conditioning. So it does facilitate these technological revolutions. It's The car certainly facilitated suburbanization, and it will continue to do so, I think. Now, in the arc of writing this book, we had the pandemic, which made people almost in a panic at some point, wonder whether that city would ever come back. And, and some have and some have come back at different places. But on this question of pandemics, of health, of health scares, of disease, the city, again, has been tested in big ways. What were your conclusions about the pandemic as we eased out of it and what we need to do in the future for cities to be places where we can live safely and we can live healthily? I really hope because of the terrible suffering that so many people have endured with losing loved ones, long COVID, 
the suffering that school kids have had. Everyone knows someone that suffered terribly as a result of the pandemic, and many of the listeners will have suffered themselves. So the question really is, is this the pandemic to end all pandemics? Can we learn from it to do things differently in a broader sense? And, and I believe that's technically possible, but do we have the political will to do so? And how does it shape the future of our own environment? What we learned, of course, through the pandemic was that what's attributed to Margaret Thatcher, having said, which is the no such thing as society, only individuals, is clearly very wrong. People made enormous sacrifices for others, the essential workers and for their neighbors and for others. And now the question arises, how will the long-term scarring of the pandemic impact on the design of cities, the way we think about cities and who lives in cities? What we are seeing is in many Northern European and North American cities, 20 to 30 to 40 percent remote work amongst professionals. And I think there's a real danger in that. There's a danger that the ecosystems around cities are destroyed, from the barbers to the baristas, those that depend on it, mass throughput. Public transport systems, which similarly depend on mass commuting, are in a very precarious state financially. And, of course, the whole real estate system, the offices, etc., who have very low occupancy. How we turn this into an opportunity, what the long-term impact on creativity and productivity is a question I address in the Age of the City, together with my co-author, Tom Lee Devlin. And I've become convinced that we do need physical proximity to be creative in the knowledge economy. And that our economies are likely to slow. And I did a whole lot of surveys of this. I've looked at the data carefully. How many days a week we need to be together is an open question. It depends on the professions. But I think we need to worry very deeply about the long-term scarring on cities and that they slow down as the engine of progress and growth, which means our whole economies will slow down in terms of their progress. How we redesign offices how we take old offices to turn them into perhaps residential areas where we have much more mixed use, how we think about places as much more mixed use will be absolutely crucial. And I, I think that actually these sort of CBDs where you only have offices are likely to become less and less of a separate artifact for the future. I think the world is likely to become a lot more like Marlebone where we're sitting today or Shoreditch or parts of New York where you have mixed office and residential. And I think that's very healthy. Of course, also where you can walk much more, where you don't have to have long commutes, etc. But how that transition works is very, very important. And we'll all be aware of some of the dynamics that are going on in San Francisco at the moment, where there really is, I think, a danger of a death spiral where wealthy people leave the city, people denude the offices, the income of cities declines, therefore the services of cities declines, and we go into, and cities have gone into, this downward spiral. And that is absolutely disastrous for everyone, and particularly for the poor people that are left behind in cities. And are you hopeful about the role of the city when we come to climate change? Because there are some fascinating contradictions that you pick up on in the book, one of which is, you know, that remote working cuts millions and millions of hours of commuting, which surely must be good for the environment in many ways, even if it's not good for the intellectual life of the city. Do you think in a way that because so many people now live in cities that the battle for climate change is going to be lost or won within our urban environment? 
Yes, I do think that. And it's both because the majority of people are there. It's not the biggest source of emissions because people in cities actually are much more carbon efficient or greenhouse gas efficient than those living in the countryside. They don't drive as far. They live in smaller units and therefore they're not heating as much or cooling as much and often they're living in terraced houses or apartment buildings so they're sharing the cooling and heating of the environment. Of course we can do a much much better job of how we do this, how we increase our recycling in cities, how we reduce our footprint so I'm not suggesting that cities are where they should be but they're much better typically than the rest of the country. So in that respect I believe that the battle will be won and lost but it's also that cities are on the front line of the problems. Cities tend to be heat islands, so they're a lot hotter. People are dying in cities. So how we deal with extreme weather, flooding, heating, and then, of course, ocean rise. Most of the growth in cities around the world is in seaboard cities, and many of them uh, within two meters of the ocean. One of my research groups in Oxford suggests we're likely to see that sort of rise in oceans possibly this century and certainly extreme weather, hurricanes, saline intrusion, etc. So what happens to places ranging from Miami to Jakarta to Mumbai to Dakar to Lagos, London and many others is going to be fought or lost in cities. Now some people will simply move to higher ground but that's not an option for the majority of the world's population that live in cities. These issues, you know, the disparity in wealth, climate change, actually they're all pretty interlinked. You know, it's hard to kind of silo them as issues. And the book is interesting because while not a manifesto, you do point some ways ahead about what you think needs to be done. What do you think needs to be done by city leaders, by civic governments, if they want to begin to tackle these interconnected and really vital issues? Well, my personal background is, you know, I'm an academic at Oxford now. My personal background is in business and government. And I really do believe that we need a practical agenda for action. And I hope that people are able to take from the book practical ideas that will be useful for them. Otherwise, there's not much point writing it, in my view. In my view. So I'll let you readers decide. There's a whole raft of different things. And one of the incredible things about cities is the level of experimentation that's going on around the world. And we try and draw on the best practice in this respect. So unlike governments, which tend to be rather ossified and make lots of plans that aren't implemented, mayors and civic leaders and communities have been quite remarkable in what they've achieved in many places. And you can draw on them. And of course, there's also a lot of contact between them and Monocle and other groups of facilitating that pollination. So there's a huge amount that can be learned. I think one of the biggest and most significant things is, I think, devolution. A government should devolve to local governments as much as possible, including financial ability to do things, to invest in the city. And, of course, how much resource the city has is absolutely crucial. Making cities more livable. So I'm a great advocate of allowing people to live in a village within a city, have local facilities. I think that's where the multi purpose parts of the city's story comes in, that we advocate much more mixed-use dimensions to cities. I think imagining cities in a world where you're going to have zero fossil fuels, very clean air, transforms the valuation of different places. So how one reimagines these places that are dirty and noisy now in a new world, how one reimagines parking lots to be vertical farms. And I think we also need to think, who are the people in the city? 
in many cities they're going to be a lot older because we have rapid aging of our society. So how you appeal to all tastes. Cities are magnetic for young people because they're finding like-minded people and they're wonderful places as partner markets. You know, you, There's a limit to how much you can do online in, in love uh, and relationships or entertainment. Cities are great for young people, but they also need to be great for elderly people. And I think thinking about that, and we point to many examples, is part of the story. Of course, a final footnote on that is what do we mean by the city? The local authority boundaries are often not those of the city. You know, they're often tiny. In a sort of metro area, really, is often the working unit that you want to be working with. And how one reconfigures the politics of a city so it encapsulates the system as opposed to some small part of it is also part of the agenda. Ian Golden, thank you very much for joining us here on The Urbanist and The Age of the City. Why Our Future Will Be Won or Lost Together is out now. At the height of its popularity, HMV, or His Master's Voice, was much more than a mere record shop. Its iconic Oxford Street location was the place to be for labels to showcase new talent, for music aficionados to find that much-sought-after record, and a mandatory stop for those visiting London. As the company grew and the number of stores expanded, HMV became an icon of British popular culture of its own. But the rise of digital and the age of streaming ended up creating a difficult reality for the store, eventually forcing it to downsize and shutter its flagship London outpost. But the rise of HMV and its relationship with the City of London and the power of bricks and mortar retail is now chronicled in a new book, His Master's Voice, The Man Who Changed the Face of Music Retail, by Brian McLaughlin. Brian spent 38 years at HMV, starting as a shop floor assistant and ending as its managing director and group COO. Well, Brian, thank you for joining us on The Urbanist. It's an extraordinary story on the power of retail. I want to start by looking at your journey within HMV. Did you ever imagine when you joined as an assistant that you might end up running the business one day? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely the place for me, but definitely I had no idea that I'd end up running the company and had no ambition to run the company. So I was overawed with their store in Oxford Street, 363 Oxford Street, as a young boy, about 12. You come out of the tube station at Bond Street and you turn right and there's this emporium of music on three floors. And I was rather taken with it. That was all I was a customer. I didn't say I want to work for them one day or anything. I just liked the record store. When I managed to get in at ground floor level, at sales assistant level, you could work out within sort of 12 months that the company didn't have a lot of ambition. It had one store in Oxford Street which made money and the nine stores that they had built outside of London were all sort of struggling and you just saw that the business didn't know where it was going really and the stores they had in London, they only had them because EMI owned HMV And a lot of the retailers in in London owed EMI money. And so the way they got their money was to buy their shops and call them HMV. What were the challenges? Because I I presume that when you first started, you were probably one of the biggest purveyors of music in the UK. 
the likes of Virgin came along. We saw some arrivals from the US trying to muscle in on on the action. Was it a competitive scene as well in London at that time for music? Well, the competition, as I said to you at the beginning, I don't really think HMV ever had, in the early days, had any real ambition outside of Oxford Street, other than that they thought they wanted to open some shops. But they didn't have a strategy, they didn't have a plan, they didn't have a formula, except that they said everything's got to be built on 363 Oxford Street's values. And the problem that you had is when you opened stores of 2,000 square feet instead of 12,000, which Oxford Street was, you can't get the same titles in the browsers that you can in in Oxford Street. So I had a big job sorting out the range. What could be possible in a small space, despite the fact that HMV Oxford Street was predominantly a completely different customer to a customer you'd find in Rotherham or Manchester or Bath or Bristol. But the challenges were the same for the competition, except I think the competition, fortunately for us, was in more disarray in terms of what they wanted, what their formula was, what their strategy was. They just filled the shop with records and hoped people would come in. You know, you can't build a business doing that. And also many of those very quickly moved into computer games or tried to be bookstores and magazine shops as well. They tried to mix so many things into it. Not under your time there, but what went wrong? Was it simply the streaming of music made people think that they didn't want to buy records anymore, that they didn't need record stores? I think that just before, well, about a year before I left, we were grappling with the onset of streaming. You've got to remember that we hadn't been a public company for that long back in about 2004 5 and if you look at amazon for example although they weren't streaming they were selling cds very very cheaply as was tesco's and asda but the streaming came a bit later but i think that for us it was an enormous investment an enormous investment to suddenly change from being a high street retailer to being something very technical we didn't a didn't have the skills and we didn't have the money. And I think that's probably true of a lot of high street retailers. I mean, for example, it's only that recently that Marks & Spencer's has had a, an online offer. And Marks & Spencer's have been in business a lot longer than most other retailers. So I think it, a lot of it's to do with money, investment, which it was very difficult for a high street retailer to get that investment when you weren't a dot-com. What's fascinating is you know, that obviously... Running parallel with your story is what happened to the book chains and, and the bookstores. You know, we saw many of the big players from the United States. They left the UK market. Some of the book companies have come out of the other side of this, reconnecting with a, an audience and a sizable audience who we thought would be lost to e-readers and would never come back. And, and they have come back and they want the physical product. And we, we have certainly seen that in, in the record space and in the music space, but not quite on the same scale maybe, lots of smaller individual independent record shops but do you think there is a space for, not going back to the scale that HMV used to have a store on Oxford Street but there's been talk of it going back to Oxford Street, do you think there is space for a a renewal of the role of the record store in our cities? I suppose from the books example you gave, I felt that it may well go the same way the CD went through the Kindle and then in my years, many years now of retirement I realised that that's not happened and it just looks as though people want to hold on to that physical book i understand the kindle is very successful i mean i have one myself but there's something very different about 
the book, maybe that explains why people have gone back to vinyl, because there's something, there was always something special about the sleeve notes on a, on a vinyl album compared to virtually nothing on a CD. So I suppose things go round in circles in the end, but I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest with you, if vinyl continues to do what it's doing. Even for me, looking at the figures, they're incredible, really. I guess the other interesting thing was, you know, again, this very visual connection with the world of music. So if you went to HMV, there would often be a band in there doing the exactly. launch of the, their new album. It wasn't something done on video or streamed. Your connection with bands was often quite close. Yeah, and I think that that happens the same in Waterstones with the authors. You know, they haven't really got another outlet and author. They don't tend to do Wembley Stadium, but they do have 250 Waterstones stores to go into and numerous other independents. So I think that cultural point that you were making earlier, I think it's still very important that... Not only can you buy the album in an HMV store or a record store, but you can get to see the artist as well. And also there was that thing, you know, the record will be dropped at 12 o'clock tonight or the record will be there first thing in the morning yep. and, and you would go past the HMV store and there'd be a yep. queue of people waiting yep. to be the first people to get yep. hold of the album. But equally, from my point of view, if let's say I'm watching a movie and there's a soundtrack to the movie and I like a song, I can, with my iPhone now, I can use Shazam it'll tell me what the record's playing on, on the soundtrack. I can then go to Spotify and I can download it. And that, that for me, is incredible. And tell me when that iconic store closed down on Oxford Street. Was that a sad moment for you? Well, you've got to remember that I closed that store down originally because it became too small. It looked busier than Bond Street Station at one stage. I mean, I'm not joking. We had three floors. It was only 12,000 square feet. And it was very, very uncomfortable for people to shop in that store. It was absolutely packed to the rafters every day. I mean, it was very, very profitable. But at the end of the day, we got a, a lucky break. Somebody phoned me and said there's a, I think it was a shoe shop that was available opposite, which was double the size. And we were very fortunate to have secured it. And we said, as sad as it is, we're going to have to close it. And we were very very fortunate because it was the iconic store in, in music. George Martin agreed to come and, once we got permission from London councils, to unveil a blue plaque, which is still there now, to say that this was the original HMV store in 1921, which was opened by Sir Edward Elgar, and that blue plaque's there. So that was sad for me, personally, but we couldn't keep that store going anymore. And then... I think Foot Locker, the shoe shop, took it. And then years on, when HMV was in administration and the new owner wanted to go back, I think Foot Locker let them back in. So they opened it and then they then closed it again. And now it's reopening again. So the sad day was not recently for me. It was whilst I was there. When you think about the world of retail and what made it special and mm. what made it unique... Not just the record shop. What, what do you think you need to run a successful retail business? I think we touched on it earlier that I always thought the way forward for us was looking at the competition was that I don't think record retailing had ever been taken seriously. I think a lot of us thought we were in the world of rock and roll and we didn't have to have the same standards, same values as Marks and Spencers or some of the other big retailers. We were in music, we could just do what we like. And a lot of our competition, not so much the independents, 
But a lot of our competitions were like that. And I think, personally, you have to have very high retail standards. You've got to have a good in-stock position. You've got to have competitive pricing, friendly staff, knowledgeable staff. And those were the values that I actually hammered and hammered away at for almost 38 years to make a successful record store. It sounds a very old-fashioned word. You have to be a good shopkeeper. And I thought that's what we became. And even though you're now in a, in a world of digital music, do you find solace? Do you find time to think? Because you made clear that music is still a vital part of your life. Is there something special that when you put the headphones on or you turn up the, the well, dial? Well, I, I walk every day with my iPod and there's not a day goes by that I don't have music on. My daughters keep me young. They keep sending me new tracks. I keep sending them tracks. So, yeah, music's still very special and important in my life. Brian McLaughlin, thank you for joining us. And Brian's book, His Master's Voice, The Man Who Changed the Face of Music Retail, is published by White Fox Publishing and is out now. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast, get new episodes every week, and subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. Today's show has been produced by Colin Trebello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's R. Curls with Book Club. Thank you for listening, city lovers. And you're killing it loud.